Hi everyone, this is Jeannie Poole. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal, and this is the November 2023 podcast. There are 11 total articles this month. The first article is titled Left Bundle Branch Area Pacing versus Biventricular Pacing for Cardiac Resynchronization, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Dr. Aman Youssef and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to look at the feasibility and also both the electromechanical and clinical outcomes of left bundle branch area pacing and BIV pacing. The authors used various common databases to perform a meta-analysis looking at both dichotomous and continuous outcomes. The final numbers of studies included was 12, representing 3,004 patients, including 1,242 undergoing left bundle branch area pacing and 1,762 undergoing biventricular pacing. Of the 12 studies included, only one was randomized, three were retrospective, and the remainder were prospective observational studies. The results of this meta-analysis show that left bundle branch area pacing was associated with a significant improvement in the left ventricular ejection fraction, improved New York Heart Association functional class, reduction in the QRS duration, reduction in the left ventricular and diastolic volume, lower heart failure hospitalization event rates, and improved overall survival. Additionally, fluoroscopy time is shorter and pacing threshold is lower. The authors conclude that left bundle branch area pacing was associated with better outcomes compared to BIV pacing. Of course, all of the limitations of meta-analyses are present, and there's only one randomized trial that was included. Fortunately, several large randomized trials have launched, which will yield insightful data. The next paper's title is Heart Failure Risk in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation Treated with Catheter Ablation Versus Antiarrhythmic Drugs. My first author, Dr. Megan Gruber. This is a comparative study of heart failure incidents in patients with AF that were treated with antiarrhythmic drugs or catheter ablation. The authors used the Optum Clinformatics database looking for patients who received an antiarrhythmic drug prescription or catheter ablation in the years 2014 to 2022. The two cohorts were matched for sociodemographic and clinical factors using propensity score methodology. Cox regression modeling compared heart failure in the two groups with subgroup analyses for race, ethnicity, sex, AF subtype, and CHADS 2 vast score. A total of 9,246 patients were included in the propensity matching. The primary outcome was a greater 57% risk of lowering heart failure occurrence in patients treated with catheter ablation compared to antiarrhythmic drugs. This finding was similar across the subgroup analyses. The authors did conduct two sensitivity analyses. In the first, the authors censored the patients in the catheter ablation cohort when they received an antiarrhythmic drug. In the second sensitivity analysis, hospitalization with a primary diagnosis of heart failure was treated as the outcome of interest in the time to event an analysis. In both cases, the primary findings were similar. The authors concluded that based upon their results, the use of catheter ablation compared to antiarrhythmic drug therapy for AF treatment may alleviate the risk of heart failure. The limitations of this study are also clear, but randomized studies such as the Castle AF trial and the sub-analysis of the Cabana trial suggest also that catheter ablation is beneficial in heart failure patients on important outcome measures. The title of the next paper is Epicardial Adipose Tissue, Pulmonary Veins Anatomy, and the P-Wave to P-R Interval Ratio in Young Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Alessio Marinelli and colleagues. This trial also has as its subject atrial fibrillation, but these authors retrospectively looked at epicardial adipose tissue, which I'll refer to now as EAT, volume, as an independent AF risk factor in 62 young patients. The patients were all 31 years of age or younger, with half of them having PAF 
and having undergone PVI cryocatheter ablation, and the other 31 patients serving as the control group, which were age and sex matched. The control group all had chest CT scans performed for other medical reasons. The authors found first that in the AF group, the EAT volume around the left atrium was 22.25 plus or minus 9.3 centimeters cubed compared with 12.61 plus or minus 3.37 centimeters cubed in the control group, which was a statistically significant difference. Secondly, they found that a family history of AF prior to 50 years was also identified to be a significant risk factor with a p-value less than 0.009. The anatomy and morphology variants of the right-sided pulmonary veins seem to be important for AF recurrences as well as the ratio of the p-wave duration to p-r interval. In summary, this is an interesting study exploring risk factors for young AF patients, and as the authors suggest, further studies with larger numbers of patients will be needed to confirm these findings. The title of the next paper is AF and In-Hospital Mortality in COVID-19 Patients by Dr. Irem Kotadia and colleagues. The background of this is that there are conflicting data on whether new-onset atrial fibrillation is independently associated with poor outcomes in COVID-19 patients. This study mines a large data set curated by manual chart review to look at outcomes in patients with sinus rhythm, 1,105 patients, pre-existing atrial fibrillation in 94 patients, and new-onset atrial fibrillation in 42 patients during the COVID-19 pandemic in patients who were admitted to hospitals between March and September of 2020. The analysis included propensity score matching. The author's key findings are first, that new-onset atrial fibrillation is the most common cardiac arrhythmia complication in patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Second, pre-existing atrial fibrillation was not associated with all-cause in-hospital mortality in patients with COVID-19 after adjusting for age, sex, race, and pre-admission CHADS-VASC-2 score. Third, patients with new-onset AF in the context of COVID-19 have an increased risk of all-cause in-hospital mortality need for mechanical ventilation, and critical care admission. And finally, patients with new-onset AF in the context of COVID-19 should be closely monitored for acute deterioration and the need for escalation of care. In the author's discussion, they note that although the specific pathophysiology of the relationship between COVID-19 and AF and higher mortality is not fully understood, possible mechanisms postulated have included the effects of COVID-19 infection on angiotensin-converting enzyme-2-related signaling pathways, cytokine storm, changes in fluid balance, hypokalemia, hypoxemia, and activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Next up is a paper titled Association of Pre-Left Ventricular Assist Device Defibrillator Shocks for Ventricular Arrhythmia with Clinical Outcomes After Left Ventricular Assist Device Implantation by Dr. Daniel Wan and colleagues. The background for this study is the prior observation that ICD shocks following LVAD therapy have been associated with adverse outcomes. Here in this study, the authors look at the relationship of ICD shocks which occurred within one year prior to LVAD placement for the prediction of post-LVAD adverse clinical outcomes. The patients for this study were retrospectively identified from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center system from 2006 to 2020. The primary composite outcome was death, stroke, and pump thrombosis. Secondary outcomes included post-ALVAD, ICD shocks, and ICD shock hospitalizations. A total of 309 patients were included who had an average age of 57, 13% were women, 
most, or 80%, had an ischemic cause of heart failure, and in 42%, the ICDs had been implanted as a bridge to transplantation. A total of 23% of the patients had experienced pre-ALVAD shocks, and a similar percent had post-ALVAD ICD shocks. Importantly, the major finding was that pre-ALVAD ICD shocks were not associated with the composite outcome. Pre-ALVAD shocks did, however, predict post-ALVAD shocks as well as hospitalizations for ICD shock-related ventricular arrhythmias. The title of the next paper is Ventricular Tachycardia and In-Hospital Mortality in the Intensive Care Unit by Dr. Priya Prasad and colleagues. The authors study a VT detection monitor used in bedside monitoring for patients in the intensive care unit. The purpose of this algorithm is to reduce false VT alarms, which occur frequently in standard telemetry monitoring. The 30-day mortality rate using the detection algorithm was compared to the standard monitoring in a retrospective analysis. The authors used survival analyses to explore the association between VT alerts and 30-day mortality in 5,679 ICU admissions. The reasons for patient admissions included cardiac in 17%, medical surgical in 38%, and neurological in 45%. The 30-day mortality was 8.9% over a median follow-up of 5.6 days for an incidence rate of 11.1 per 1,000 patient days. The authors found that a total of 30.1% had at least one current bedside monitor VT alert. 14.3% had a new unannotated algorithm VT alert, and 11.6% had a true annotated VT alert. The author's conclusion was that unannotated and annotated true VT were associated with an increased rate of 30-day in-hospital mortality, whereas current bedside monitoring of VT was not. Their new algorithm, they suggest, may accurately identify high-risk VT. However, they admit that prospective validation is needed. Now, there is an editorial for the above paper. The name of the editorial is called A New Algorithm for an Old Problem, Reducing False Alarms and Alarm Fatigue for Ventricular Tachycardia Detection in the Hospital Setting. This is written by Dr. Margaret Harvey. The next paper is titled Uncoupling Cytosolic Calcium from Membrane Voltage by Transient Receptor Potential Molestatin 4-Channel or TRP-M4 Modulation a novel strategy to treat ventricular arrhythmias by Drs. Prelai Chakraborty and colleagues. This is a review paper that describes the role of cytosolic calcium signaling, which is known to have an important role in driving membrane voltage, though has not been targeted for therapeutic purposes in arrhythmogenesis. The authors note that there is clear evidence for bidirectional coupling between membrane voltage and intracellular calcium. In their review, the authors go on to describe a novel concept for the management of ventricular arrhythmias, specifically in the remodeled ventricle, using the data from experimental studies which examined the effect of uncoupling on the intracellular calcium-induced changes in membrane voltage by inhibition of a TRPM4 mediated current. I'm going to read to you the author's key findings from this interesting review paper. First, transient receptor potential melastatin-4, or TRPM4, channels are calcium-regulated membrane ion channels that principally carry inward current during membrane cardiac repolarization. Second, in structurally normal ventricles, TRPM4 channels are mainly expressed in Purkinje fibers. However, higher expression and current density are reported in myopathic ventricular cardiomyocytes. 
Third, increased activity of the TRPM4 channel plays an important role in the pathogenesis of calcium overload-induced ventricular arrhythmias. Fourth, inhibition of TRPM4 is shown to inhibit ventricular arrhythmias in conditions such as coronary ischemia, ischemic heart failure, and catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia without significantly altering the intracellular calcium homeostasis. And finally, TRPM4 inhibition is also associated with improvement of the inotropic state of myopathic ventricle. The next paper is a brief report titled Reduction and Elimination of Operator Exposure to Radiation During Endocardial Ventricular Arrhythmia Ablation Procedures Over Time by Dr. Uyanga Batniam and colleagues. These authors looked at radiation exposure to the operator during ablation of ventricular tachycardia, or PVCs, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital between 2009 and 2022. During this time, the operators started to use zero fluoroscopy ablation techniques. The analysis included 2,266 ventricular ablations with fluoroscopy data. 57% had endocardial VT ablation, 37% had PVC ablation, and 5.2% had epicardial, needle, or alcohol ablation. The author's key findings include, first, fluoroscopy times used during ablation of endocardial ventricular arrhythmias have diminished steadily over time at their institution. Second, the use of zero fluoroscopy techniques has also increased over the last five years of their study, and over 40% of endocardial ventricular tachycardia ablations were completed without any radiation exposure to the patient or operator. And then finally, there were no observable differences in intra-procedural complication rates related to the use of zero fluoroscopy techniques. The final paper is really great to have in HRO2, and I hope the readers will have a chance to look at this. There's also a link to the recorded presentation that you can access. This paper is a consequence of the May 27, 2022 Asia-Pacific Heart Rhythm Society and the Heart Rhythm Society, which convened a meeting of leaders from the different professional societies of healthcare providers from the Asia-Pacific region. The title of the paper is Statement from the Asia Summit, Current State of Arrhythmia Care in Asia by Drs. Wataru, Shimizu, and colleagues. The primary goal of this meeting was to identify the clinical and health policy issues that face each country included in this review, specific to the care of patients with arrhythmias. This excellent document summarizes, first, major clinical problems faced by these different countries, second, the risk factors and associated major health care issues, and third, the access to advanced arrhythmia care that's available, such as workforce availability, resources, drug availability, and also national health care policies. An output of the meeting was to identify a systematic regional method to work together to address these challenges. For those of us living and practicing in global areas outside of Asia, I really encourage all of you to read this, Look at the fantastic figures and tables, and I'm sure you'll learn something new about arrhythmia practice in Asia. Well, that summarizes the November 2023 podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you again next month.